you always have had to think about the future and where things might be going. And you wanted to make interest rate decisions not based on, you know, what's happened to inflation in the last six months, but what you think's going to happen in the future. And the labor market is very important in, in that regard. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, Joseph Douglas Green, 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Professor Sir Stephen John Nichol, who was once the warden at Nuffield College at Oxford and also professor of economics at the London School of Economics. He is renowned for his work in labor economics and especially for his work on the macroeconomics of labor markets. Steve, welcome to The Work Goes On. Thank you. Let's begin the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up? I was uh, born in uh, a suburb of northwest London at the tail end of the Second World War. The only excitement I was told was when a uh, V-1 rocket landed close enough to our house to blow off the French windows. But since I was only a few months old, I uh, have forgotten all about it. But it was very exciting. My auntie fell on top of me. <laughs> it does sound like. I, but one of the things you missed, I guess, you didn't really don't remember it very well. So um, there I was. I lived in a suburb, and uh, my uh, father was uh, in the war, and he was uh, in the Far East, and he didn't return home till 1946 when I was two years old. And my mother reported that I said, uh, when is that strange man going to go away? <laughs> but he didn't go away. And uh, so there we were. My brother, who is eight years older than me, was uh, also living at home at the time. And uh, uh, we had a very boring kind of life, really. I was a, uh, brought up as a Roman Catholic. And so I was an altar boy, which uh, was very entertaining because uh, if you're an altar boy, you're up there performing on the stage rather than sitting in the audience, which is uh, much more interesting, makes church much, much more interesting, I thought, at the time. Anyway, I went to school. Um, I used to cycle to school every day. Um, and uh, I was uh, pretty clever, I guess. And uh, so after uh, I uh, finished school, I got a, a scholarship to uh, Cambridge University to study mathematics. I just have to interrupt you for one second. Uh, now, where did you go to secondary school? Uh, I went to a school called Merchant Tailors. What is that? What is a Merchant Tailor? Is that a, a school for tailors? Uh, it was, actually, in the uh, 17th century. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, subsequently, it developed into a school for ordinary people. Merchant Tailors is one of the livery companies in the city of London, 
but the school was, uh, and the school was founded in, I don't know, the 16th century, and uh, had a few famous old boys. Uh, one of them was uh, uh, Edmund Spencer, who wrote The Fairy Queen, <laughs> and, uh, but otherwise it was relatively it was all boys. Oh boy, I, I saw it was the Merchant Taylor. So I, I uh, the merchants, the Merchants Taylor School. So I was surprised by that. But I, now I understand. I understand better. Why, how did you happen to go to that school? School. I went there because my parents sent me there, and uh, I got a scholarship, so they didn't have to pay any money, which was uh, very good for them. And uh, I. Uh, had a good education. Uh, the, we had some very good math teachers, and uh, I was particularly good at good at mathematics. And I played a lot of sport and did the usual stuff. And well, nothing very exciting. My father was a bank clerk. He used to uh, he used to cycle to work every day, and he cycled home for lunch, wearing a Homburg hat, um, <laughs> which. Uh, was a sort of, and a suit, of course, as befits a bank clerk. He was a pretty tough character, actually. Um, my mother was uh, a, a housewife. So I, I led a pretty blameless life, I would say. And then, and then next you go to Cambridge. Indeed. And I, I studied maths at Cambridge. And uh, that was uh, also good fun. I, I, I think uh, I probably wasn't the most... Uh, a strong student in the sense that I, I guess I spent too much time drinking and womanizing and so on. So I, I wasn't a particularly distinguished student. And as a consequence, I had no real sort of plans for what I was going to do uh, after I left uh, university. So um, there I was, I ended up as a school teacher. And I taught mathematics at uh, in a place called Hendon, which is uh, in in North London, and uh, I suppose the, the that this was a co-educational school, um, and uh, I I really rather enjoyed myself there. I played a lot of tennis. Uh, we used to play field hockey in the in the winter, but teaching was uh, well. You taught twenty hours a week, um, so that when I eventually ended up in academia, I thought that. Uh, the teaching load was pretty negligible compared <laughs> with what I was used to. Um, but I, I decided after I'd been there for, th for three years, um, the only prospect, if you were a school teacher, was you'd, especially if you're a maths teacher, you tended to end up as a headmaster. <laughs> and uh, uh, being a head of a secondary school, well, the headmaster of the school I taught at was deeply unhappy. <laughs> uh, and, and so I thought to myself, do I want to struggle for, for many years to rise to this, the height of being a headmaster, only to be deeply unhappy? So <laughs> I thought, I better do something else. So what I decided to do was, um, when I was at, at Cambridge, I had a couple of friends who did economics. And their description of economics in Cambridge uh, was rather... I thought it sounded rather entertaining subject. I don't know if you know much about Cambridge economics in in that era, but just to give you an example, uh, I once asked um, uh, one of them, uh, "What was the most in important work in in economics?" And the answer, believe it or not, 
was the production of commodities by means of commodities by Piero Schraffer, <laughs> which I went away and looked at. I thought it was in incredibly boring and an incomprehensible <laughs> book. But, but uh, that was Cambridge economics in those days. But, uh, but I thought in general economics sounded quite good fun. So I applied to um, the London School of Economics to do a, uh, a master's degree in uh, mathematical economics and econometrics. That sounded about my metier, and believe it or not, they accepted me. So uh, I turned up at uh, the London School of Economics, and uh, for this course, which was a two-year course, because I had never done economics in my life, and uh, believe it or not, that, that I was interviewed by three people on my first day. One of them was uh, Terence Gorman. Uh, you probably know. You probably met Terence. Uh, yeah, I knew Terence. Actually, I knew him fairly well. There you are. So, a wonderful man, an Irishman, very eccentric. After after about half an hour with him, I sort of begin to wonder what what was in store for me. <laughs> so he he um, he said, "Well, you should go down and talk to Frank." Frank was Frank Hahn. So the next person I saw was Frank Hahn. And after half an hour with Frank Hahn, I thought, wow, this is, <laughs> this is pretty strange stuff, stuff this, uh, this economics. But luckily, I then um, was passed on to, to, to Dennis Sargon, who, who was an extremely sensible, clever man. And uh, he sort of calmed me down and said that uh, despite the possible first impressions I got, that uh, you will find this course both rigorous and, uh, and entertaining. So I did the course. I spent the first year learning economics, basically. And then the second year I was taught a lot of, I learned a lot of econometrics from Dennis Sargon. And Jim Durbin. Jim Durbin, I, I thought, was pretty cool because it's not often you get taught by someone who has a test named after them. <laughs> That's right. He was quite a, a, a great character. But I learned lots and lots of economic theory. In, that, uh, in my second year, I was taught by Frank Hahn, Terence Gorman, Herbert Scarf, Michio Morishima, Joe Stiglitz, who was visiting Cambridge at the time but gave some lectures down at the school and uh, so I had a pretty good grounding in really high theory which uh, uh, served me quite well uh, subsequently. You certainly had a, a couple of very eccentric people to talk to at the beginning. I, I did know Gorman some. In fact, I still remember going to talk to him once to ask him about, I was working on some problems having to do with the rationing and asking him about what theoretical papers have been written on this. And he said, you know, if I read as much as others, I'd know as little. <laughs> so you should just <laughs> just go solve the problem yourself. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I, he claimed Edmund Burke said that. <laughs> <laughs> that he never read any, he never read anything. He read as much as yeah. others. He'd notice as little. So I, I I I did go off actually and do I followed his advice. But those are all eccentric people, and of course, very famous uh, characters from that period. How did you then get onto the faculty and start doing research? This is uh, it would seem, uh, I guess, to present day 
economists would be pretty extraordinary. What happened was I, I was doing pretty well on the course, and and Frank Hahn came came to see me one day, this towards the end of the course, and he said the following. He said, we've just advertised for a lectureship, and uh, I'm on the committee. And we, the committee met, and we looked at all the applications, and I said to the committee, I said, young Nichols better than this lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I suggest you apply. He always called you young. He did that with me too, young Ashenfelder. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So um, I uh, applied for the job and, and I got it. And then uh, after I got the job, Frank came to see me and he said, well, I've got you this job. So um, what you've got to do is in, the, in five years' time, I would expect you to have published at least two really good papers. If you haven't published these really two really good papers, I'll personally ensure that you're sacked. <laughs> uh, and uh, that, uh, that was the sum total of my research training. <laughs> that's, I have never heard that story, but it's, you know, and yeah, that's Frank Hahn is someone who would do that. That's the trouble. It's all true. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There I was. And you didn't go, I know you're one of the few economists I know who's done well for themselves. You don't actually have a PhD. Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, uh, as I say, I, I didn't have any, I had no research training, merely a threat. <laughs> and uh, so I had no idea what to do. Um, I, of course, I had to give lectures and, and do a lot, of, a lot of teaching. I found the economics department very congenial because they were very egalitarian. Everyone in the economics department taught the same number of hours. Uh, we, taught, we all taught 120 hours a, a year. So, of course, after my school teaching experience, this seemed like an absolute doddle. And uh, so you had plenty of time. And I suppose that the thought of doing research, well, I had all these examples of papers that, that one, read, uh, one reads. So I thought, well, I better write something like that. <laughs> uh, so I had a few sort of ideas and, and I eventually ended up writing about irreversible investment because, because the theory of investment in those days was a somewhat curious notion that people invested up to the point where the marginal product of capital was equal to a real rate of interest um, suitably uh, sort of with prices and so on but this this theory, there's nothing about the future. So it's obvious if you if you think about investment. I mean, it's quite obvious that when people make investment decisions, they have to think about the future. But here is a model of investment which didn't seem to mention the future. So I, I discovered from a paper from Ken Arrow that of course if you if you make investment irreversible, then it forces the the future into into the current decision. So anyway, I wrote about that. I, I, I wrote most of the paper, actually, in uh, Hanover, New Hampshire, uh, where I spent a very happy summer listening to Herbert Scarf and his mates uh, talking about uh, practical methods of, of finding the equilibrium in, in the economy. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't really interested in that, but I, was, I liked the idea of spending some time in, in, in North America but uh, I had plenty of time to write, and I, I eventually finished this paper, which uh, turned out to be 
good enough to be accepted as the lead paper in the 1974 January issue of the Review of Economic Studies. And so I was off. And I just wrote more papers on this kind of area. None of it has anything to do with labor economics. No, I was going to ask you. So uh, uh, I knew nothing about labor economics. No, and eventually, I think uh, probably the your best known work, I would guess, is the the book with the two Richards, Jackman and Layard. Uh, Layard did a one of the podcasts earlier and talked about it too. So at some point, you're all at the London School of Economics. At some point, the labor the labor market must have suddenly become an issue of some interest. And then you teamed up with Layard and this ultimately this book came about. How did that happen? Well, how did I get into labor economics? Well, the, the answer was actually because I played soccer. I, uh, the, the LSE economics department uh, had five-a-side soccer matches every week. And one of the key players in this group was Dave Metcalf. So I, I used to play with Dave and got very friendly with him. And um, he decided that he was writing some paper and he needed some econometric help. So uh, I said, uh, I offered to, to help with the econometrics. And, and so I got into this paper. And then uh, Richard, I think, lived next door. He always claims that he heard me uh, sort of talking loudly to... Uh, to Dave and banging the blackboard and he came round after I was banging the blackboard because he could hear it very clearly from his room next door and he came in and, and we started talking about labour economics and some interesting things and uh, so then I got into labour economics and uh, I joined up with Richard and did some work on duration and, and so on and I got used to uh, dealing with people who gave us money to do things, which is very important. You needed research assistance if you were going to do this kind of stuff, I discovered. And uh, tagging along with Richard was very useful because Richard was very good at uh, persuading people to give, give us money to do research. So uh, that's how I kind of got into it. And uh, so Richard and I and, and Dave... Uh, wrote a few papers and and uh, and so on, and so we're taking up to getting up to. Well, of course, I came to, to Princeton in in 1979, and uh, then when uh, 1979 was a big year, of course, because Mrs. Thatcher became uh, prime minister in 1979, and uh, by 1980. 82, 83, unemployment in, in Britain had uh, rocketed absolutely skywards. And the Treasury used to put out a theory. Uh, when asked why unemployment was so high, they used to tell, tell the world that unemployment was high because real wages were, high, were too high, which, of course, is a sort of nonsensical statement since you can hardly get a variable which is more endogenous than real wages, so <laughs> so that was not very helpful. And the, the Treasury were very worried about unemployment. And, and one day, Terry Burns uh, and one of his uh, juniors, Terry Burns was the chief economist at the Treasury at that time. He he called Richard and I in, and he said, "We want you to investigate this subject." 
and we want you to write stuff, uh, something which would explain in relatively straightforward terms why unemployment was so high. And so Richard and I thought this was a challenge, so we did this. And uh, eventually, of course, after much sort of uh, full starts and various papers we used to uh, we used to write, which were not wholly satisfactory, um, we decided we got Richard Jackman on board, and we decided that we'd write a book which would uh, cover the whole subject. And that's roughly how it came about. But we were prompted by by a request from the Treasury. That's very that's interesting. I wasn't aware of that. I still remember actually visiting the, the Prime Minister. Do you remember this? Uh, Richard Laird. Of course. <laughs> well, that was before that. Yes, the Harold Wilson, I think. That was when Jim Callahan was Prime Oh, Minister. Callahan, sorry. Got it backwards. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And this was in the in the night in the late seventies. I, I remember it because I showed up with a jacket and tie, the American guy, and you showed up in a leather jacket. I thought that was kind of cheeky for a for meeting the prime minister, uh, but I still remember him saying he would never preside over an economy where there were more than a a million British people unemployed. Which, of course, he did preside over such an economy after all. But uh, I still remember him saying that. Now, I, I have to I have to ask you about something. You've actually then moved on to something which is probably even more unusual for uh, someone in labor economics. Uh, you served for uh, many years, several, uh, six years, I guess, as a part of the Monetary Policy Committee Indeed, at the Bank of England. So first of all, tell me how in the world did that happen, uh, that they managed to get a labor economist on there? And then you have a reputation, at least uh, somewhat of a reputation, for being a little curmudgeonly on this committee and not necessarily going along with all the decisions they like <laughs> to make. Tell us about it. Well, first of all, you have to understand how I got on. I think it must have been because I'd already met Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown was the chancellor uh, at the time. Uh, but my meeting with Gordon Brown is quite, is quite interesting, a sort of highlight. In Aspen, Colorado, every year, a bunch of bankers meet and pontificate, discuss things. And in 1996 they decided that uh, they wanted to uh, spend a day talking about the labor market, which is uh, pretty unusual for bankers. <laughs> um, they wanted a European, so they asked Larry Katz who they should get, and Larry Katz said me. So I went off to Aspen uh, with the whole family, in fact, two children, and Sue came, and um, Gordon Brown was there. Uh, we spent a day, we had a day uh, on uh, labor markets, American labor markets and European labor markets, and it was quite a good day. But this is the high point of my career because we used to sit in the Aspen Institute. We sat in this room and there were tables with three people uh, at each table. And uh, I, I sat between uh, Gordon Brown and Paul Volcker. <laughs> and, uh, so you had, you definitely had the top of the the top of the mountain there. <laughs> so we well, should we should remind people. So the Chancellor of the Exchequer is really a Secretary of the Treasury in Britain. Exactly. And, and Paul Volcker at this time was probably Chairman of the Fed or had been. No, chairman no, I of the think Fed. He'd, he I think he'd finished with that. Formerly been. Chairman but he of the was Fed. a he was a grand figure, of course, hugely tall and a very big guy. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Anyway, Gordon Brown was very interested in uh, how to get people, uh, low-paid people, giving them some more money, namely in-work benefits. So that was very lucky because Larry Katz is the America's greatest expert on in-work benefits. So I introduced him to Larry Katz, and, and of course Gordon was a very, uh, he liked to sort of, a bit like Richard really, he liked to sort of pound away at a subject till he, he understood it. And I think he and Larry must have talked for about three hours on this, on this subject. Anyway, Gordon Brown must have remembered this because in 2000 I, I got a call from uh, the uh, Permanent Secretary of the Treasury, who was called Gus O'Donnell, and uh, uh, Gordon Brown's assistant, who is called Ed Balls, and they called me up and said, would I go to see them? I went to see them, and they said, would you like to be on the Monetary Policy Committee? So I said, yeah, sounds excellent, <laughs> but I, I'd have to get leave from the from LSE. So they said, well, ring them up now. So I rang, <laughs> ring the director. The director wasn't there, but I rang the secretary and said, you know, this seemed to be a good opportunity. So I said to, to Gus, can I think about it? Well, he said, yes, but not for very long because the uh, Chancellor wants to announce it in Parliament tomorrow. <laughs> so uh, I was appointed to this uh, monetary policy meeting. I went to see Eddie George, who was the governor of the Bank of England, and we got on very well. And uh, so by June, I was... Uh, I was still teaching at LSE, but uh, uh, I was one day a week at LSE and four days a week at the bank. So I was there. I was on the Monetary Policy Committee. It was uh, it was very uh, very entertaining and very interesting. And of course, the great thing about it was it was an executive committee. We weren't advisory. We set the short term interest rate. <laughs> the uh, the repo rate isn't it called the repo rate? Yeah, that sort of thing. So we we set the short term interest rate, and uh, we had to uh, produce an inflation report every every so often and forecasts and and we met once a month, and uh, it was a genuinely uh, when we met for the decision making that was on a a a, a, a Wednesday and a Thursday. We had a long meeting on Wednesday where we discussed the economy and that, then a, a meeting on, on Thursday where we announced our decision. And the, the way the decision-making is a voting system and uh, you voted sequentially. And uh, the way it worked was that, first of all, Mervyn King, who was the then chief economist, no, he was the deputy governor, Mervyn King went first. So he had the first vote. And then Eddie randomised the, the remaining votes with him going last. Eddie had a rule, and his rule was that he could never be on the losing side. <laughs> so that I, I'm, there, there were several occasions where I was convinced that Eddie wanted to, to, do, to, make, to go one way, but was forced to go the other way because he insisted on being on the uh, on the winning side, and if you go last, um, by and large, most on most occasions, unless it's four four, there are nine people on the committee. The most occasions, unless it's four four, the decision has already been taken by the time Eddie gets to vote. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, so he uh, he voted on the winning side every time. Incidentally, the, the, it may be surprising. This was a smoke-filled room. Eddie smoked. Eddie George smoked constantly. Uh, and another and another uh, member of the committee, Cordian Plenley, smoked constantly as well. So by the time the meeting was finished, the room was sort of awash with smoke. <laughs> um, and Mervyn, who had to sit next to Eddie, hated it, hated <laughs> the smoking. And uh, even if there were a ban on smoking indoors, Eddie was the governor and he, uh, he smoked. Eddie uh, finished his period as the governor in uh, 2003, and then Mervyn became the governor. And the day... Eddie left, and Mervyn took over. No smoking signs went up across the <laughs> bank. <laughs> and uh, we used to have a lot of meals, uh, lunches and dinners and various things. And uh, in Eddie's time, uh, the meals were quite, quite large. You know, lots of meat and potatoes and puddings and wine and so on. Anyway, when uh, when Eddie left and Mervyn took over, then it was wall to wall sea bass. Uh, <laughs> right. No, uh, what I have to ask you? No, is, no wine either. At I, time. No wine, of course. Uh, the uh, that's the American way. Uh, the uh, I have to ask you though. After spending six years on that committee, what role did you think labor economics played in what was going on? Did you play a role using the kind of work you had done? At the LSC? Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, the way it worked was that if you wanted to set the interest rate, the idea was you set the interest rate to try and get the inflation to hit the target within two years. And uh, the way it worked was that the, the bank, the bank, we had huge backup. Now, so remember, there were, the monetary policy division of the Bank of England had 105 economists beavering away um you know many more economists are in the treasury and uh, of course the in in terms of inflation and the way it worked it, the labor market was fantastically important and so uh, eddie was very happy to have someone who had some expertise in this area uh to uh, help help with the decisions the key thing was the forecast was, was trying to forecast. But of course, forecasting, as you know, you, you have models and you, they produce forecasts. But basically, it all boils down to judgment. And so if you had some idea of what was happening in the labour market, that, that really did help in, in producing the, the sort of judgments that were required to produce, uh, to produce an interest rate decision. And the key always, I, I always felt, was you always had to be Ahead, you always had to think about the future and where things might be going, and you wanted to make interest rate decisions not based on you know what's happened to inflation in the last six months, but what you think's going to happen in the future. And the labour market is very important in in that regard because uh, uh, wage setting is, is a sort of key. Uh, part of the the whole business. You you did switch careers at some point, and uh, become the warden of Nuffield College at Oxford. I have to say, warden sounds like someone who guards a penitentiary. You know, that's what we call at the penitentiary where you lock people up. We call the the head of the 
penitentiary, the warden, but I imagine it was a different job at Nuffield College. <laughs> Every Oxford College and Cambridge College has a person in charge, and they're called various names. Uh, Nuffield and Wadham and various other colleges have wardens, but St. John's, which I've always been very, I was very envious of, the, the, the head of St. John's is called the president. <laughs> and, uh, of course, some colleges they're called the master. And there, there are various, various different names. And uh, this is sort of historic. Uh, of course, Nuffield, not a very old college. Nuffield was founded by Lord Nuffield, who was uh, William Morris, who uh, owned and ran Morris Motors, mm. which... Uh, at one time, was the biggest car manufacturer in Britain, and at one time he was the richest man in Britain. No, oh, that was um, a, he's a strictly twentieth-century college. A- absolutely. I mean, he, he gave the money and built the college in uh, in the nineteen fifties. It was a graduate college as well, mm-hmm. which uh, was very uh, very nice. Very distinguished economists there. I visited. There have been a, a long string of distinguished economists. Is that is that like herding cats, or how how would you describe? Uh, yes, being the warden. Of course, the the interesting thing is that the the fellows of the college are the people who uh, make up something called the governing body, and they select the warden. So the warden is their employee, if you like. On the other hand, he's in charge, and uh, so he has responsibility for everything. And it involves money, of course, because Nuffield, like many colleges, had quite a substantial endowment, which was grown from the original endowment given by Lord Nuffield. So we, you know, there were investment committees and and so on. Um, but and, and there were a lot of good economists and uh, sociologists. I mean, John Goldthorpe was one of the. A great sociologists at uh, at Nuffield, um, but of course, when I was young, when I I, I, I first went to Nuffield in uh, in 1984, I left LSE and went to Oxford, and um, of course, Jim Jim Murleys was the star of uh, of Nuffield at that time. He was a star economist. He he was a sort of great man. I, I visited there when he was the warden, I think, actually, of, of the college, and I always ha- admired him for many many reasons, not least of which was his Scottish accent. He, he was terrific. I remember I first met him when when uh, I I was ele- I I was elected to the editorial board of the Review of Economic Studies, where all the youngsters gathered. You know, Joan Robinson called the Review of Economic Studies the children's newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was right. Um, we were all, all these young, when, in the 1970s when I was around, you know, next uh, Melvin King and so on. But uh, Jim, Jim was the uh, chairman of the, the board when I first, w- first went there. And our biggest decision we had to make was the price to set. Because we ran the journal, I mean, you know, we set the price. And uh, Jim said, when setting the price, how should we set the price of the Review of Economic Studies? Jim's answer was to maximize world welfare, <laughs> which uh, 
I was very impressed with <laughs> Of course, the, the steps from maximizing world welfare to the price of the new economic studies was quite a long, <laughs> long way to go. Yes, that's true. It could have been zero to infinity, I guess, would be probably the range you'd come up with. Well, we're coming to the end of our, our podcast, which has been very enjoyable. I have to ask you just one last thing. Uh, you, you've been involved in really the transformation of economics in Britain uh, and probably also in Europe. Uh, I remember as a young American uh, visiting, and, and Britain was really uh, a, a, an island of economics by comparison with the rest of Europe. That's no longer true. And, and the LSE was probably even a bigger island, maybe, the, maybe composed the most of the landmass in the island uh, with phenomenal economists by the standards of what we now call modern economics. And you earlier made comments about the Cambridge version. What, what's your take on the state of economics in Britain now? Oh, I think it's in, uh, in pretty good shape. Of course, uh, the, the top universities for economics in Britain, about five or six of them, um, and, and they have uh, very good uh, faculty. I mean, the, the the difficulty is, of course, is always that that the the, the siren call of, of of the United States and that the money is always there. So a lot of uh, very good economists tend to leave the UK and and come to the United States. But I think that uh, that economics is in in pretty good shape in 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 the UK. I I don't see any serious. Uh, serious problems. Uh, and of course, as you say, European economics has become much more professional uh, over the last 30 years. And, uh, uh, and so, uh, generally speaking, I think uh, it, it's, it's pretty healthy. It's been wonderful talking to you, Steve. I can't resist saying this at the end. Our guest today has been Sir Steve Nickel, former warden at Nuffield College in Oxford and Professor of Economics at the London School of Economics. Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.